Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel, the editor of the TLS. With me is commissioning editor, holder of caricates, collector of scuttage, wearer of scarves, Thea Lenarducci. Hello, Thea. Hello. Uh, we talked about scarves last time, and mm. I went back to the office and said, Thea thinks that scarves stop coals. And Ros Deneen, our features editor, said, yes, Italians are full of quack notions. <laughs> and when she was in Italy, apparently, she kept saying things like, you know, have honey and you won't get warts and stuff like that. Well, I mean, I may, I may be guilty of that. Is, it, is that an Italian All thing? All I know is that this weekend I left the house a few times without a scarf and, and I'm feeling a little worse for wear. Correlation and causation, though. <laughs> correlation. I actually did some Googling on the subject, you'd be pleased to know. The science is mixed. There is a view that covering the nose st- helps stop getting colds. A little mask thing that they have in Japan mm. subways. That apparently works because that's where a lot of the infections is. But there's no evidence that I could find in three minutes Googling... <laughs> Discarve stop colds. <laughs> there is no evidence that a warm neck at all is critical. I would like I would like it to be known that I never said that it stopped the common cold. I, no. As as our producer pointed out last week, I think no one really knows how to do that. <laughs> yeah, I got a feeling that we've got quite an elevated bunch of listeners. There must be some medical people there. I think they can would they... have done it by now if. if, if I, don't, I, don't, I don't expect to cure the common cold, but can <laughs> they, could they weigh in to us? Do you think and explain? If there's any theory behind scarves versus colds. Is this, is this how you're choosing to initiate our kind of Twitter conversation? Yeah, yeah, it's going yes. high. Yeah, exactly. I thought I'd aim high. <laughs> at Stig Abel, what's your, your handle? At Thea Lenarducci? I think so, yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about something else, I promise. Uh, in fact, if you want to subscribe to the TLS, and you may not want to after that uh, conversation, but please do. Google TLS subscriptions, type pod1 in the offer code section. You can get six issues for £6. Do remember to review us on iTunes, where you can presumably also in the comment section there. Leave, leave your theories about colds. Uh, this week, we're going to discuss the value of children's books and especially their illustrations. The TLS is upping its coverage of this style of fiction and Imogen Russell-Williams, our regular rounder-upper of children's books, will be in the studio to talk about some of the brightest and the best. Who reads Anthony Pohl anymore? And does it really matter how you pronounce his name? I always said Powell, but I am, of course, wrong. Did you say Powell? 
You're I in... didn't really say either. No, but it's not... <laughs> Admittedly. I think if you say pal in mixed yes, company, people, have to say pal, yeah, people look at you like... I mean, I presume that's that's something that he he imposed himself. I think that's right. So we'll when when uh, Ian Wilson, who's, who's going to be in here shortly to talk about it, can we're going to say pal. Mm-hmm. So it looks like we know what we're talking about. Of course. Right. Uh, and finally, remember a couple of weeks ago we talked about the visit of fiction editor Toby Lishtig to Peru, where he may or may not have drunk cocaine tea. Well, while he was there, he chatted to literary darling Jeff Dyer. We're going to run the whole interview as a separate podcast, but give you a 10-minute chunk in this one. When the novelist Anthony Pohl died in 2000, many rushed to remember him as the British Proust, largely off of the back of A Dance to the Music of Time, a 12-novel sequence published at roughly two-year intervals between 1951 and 1975 about the bobbing together and apart of a vast cast of upper-class and bohemian characters. In his lifetime, Pohl had been admired by John Betjeman, P.G. Woodhouse, Clive James and Evelyn Waugh, among others. His erstwhile friend, the writer Malcolm Muggeridge, chose to compare Pohl to Stendhal instead, suggesting, A.N. Wilson explains in this week's paper, that posterity would not be kind to his work. Larkin cut to the chase and called him a horse-faced dwarf, while War Jr. simply loathed him. That the legacies of his friends and admirers, yes, War and Woodhouse, but also his good friend George Orwell and Graham Greene, far eclipsed Pohl's own legacy, suggests that Muggeridge was not altogether wrong. And yet, in the US, Time magazine included Dance on its 100 best English language novels from 1923 to 2005. And in the UK, in 2010, the Times named Pohl among their 50 greatest British writers since 1945. All of which presents a rather split view of things, and doesn't tell us much about whether anyone actually reads Pohl now. And if they do, how many go beyond Dance, which admittedly would be no meek undertaking. A.N. Wilson, a long-time champion of Paul's work, is here to tell us more. Um, hello. Hello there. <laughs> Perhaps you could, you could start by answering that question, in fact. Who, who reads Paul now? And if, if the answer is not very many people, why do you think that is? It's a good question, because when I was preparing to write this review, I asked everybody I met, when did you last read Dance the Music of Time? How many of the volumes did you ever get through? And so on. And I was amazed, even by old codgers like myself, age 60-something, by the number of people who either said they'd never read it or they couldn't get through it. Yeah, I've, I've only read one. I've not read the whole thing. Um, you're in for a treat one day, but you yeah. need to have flu or a very long holiday or something of the kind. So what's good about it? What, what, um, what's the? I think the mistake people made, uh, when Vol 1 came out, the headline in a French newspaper of the translation was uh, Le Proust Anglais, and he isn't Le Proust Anglais. It's nothing like Proust. It, it just happens to be a long sequence of novels. Proust is all about his own inner life and how we remember things, and um, it's a very interior and interiorised book, whereas Dance is a deliberately superficial book. It, it struts along the surfaces of things, and it's like being gossiped to by a very, very good Welsh gossip, which is, among other things, what Pohl was. And it's not... The other thing people think it's, it is, is, like Proust, um, a book about the aristocracy. Well, there is... Um, there's one marriage in the book, namely the narrator's marriage to an aristocratic household, and by the end of the book, more or less all the characters turn out to be his brother-in-law or his... <laughs> aunt or something of the kind. But um, it isn't really about upper-class life. It's about bohemian life. You say in the, the review, memorably, um, 
It's the sort of people you might meet at the TLS summer party rather than at a shooting party at Beaver Castle, <laughs> let us say. Well, exactly. No, it is. I mean, <laughs> So shambolic people, is that it's what you... It's shambolic people, it's bohemian people, it's people who don't pay their bills properly. I'm not suggesting that you're... <laughs> yeah. I'm not suggesting that you're we're contributors yet, yeah. to do this, but, yeah, but you know nodding. what I mean. Yeah. So, and it's... I mean, there are ambitious worldly dons, there are failed novelists, there are people running little magazines. It's that sort of a book. So, so what's... What, who, who would you like him to, if not Proust? I think he is one of the greats. Really? Um, but I think he's very hard to classify because people often compare him with his contemporary Evelyn Waugh, yeah. and he's nothing like that either. His hero, and Evelyn Waugh's hero, when they were young men, was Ronald Furbank. Oh. Um, now, obviously, Ronald Furbank wrote these extremely mannered, high-camp, very short books, and Pohl was written as a very <laughs> mannered, but long book, uh, which isn't particularly camp, but... Uh, in his use of dialogue, in the way that he only tells you very little things about his characters, in the way that people reveal themselves in short exchanges, the other great influence is Chekhov. Um, mm. uh, so that he didn't want, uh, in a way that Chekhov never comes at a thing head on, he always comes sideways. Uh, Paul, I remember once said to me, when I said, how do you write dialogue? He said, one thing that you should always remember is if somebody asks a question, they should never be given the answer. Ah, is he fu- was he funny? He was funny, yes. In person and in... In, in, in person, and he was funny. And also, he was a very, very good gossip. And he remembered things always slightly inaccurately about people, which, of course, you can never tell whether it's deliberate or not. <laughs> I didn't know him very well. I met him about ten times, I suppose. And are his books funny? Like, Are they funny like some War is them, funny? Some, they're not as funny as Evelyn War, but... Um, there are some moments in the dance music of time which are very, very funny indeed. It's a slightly more muted humour. It's more muted... I've talked about Chekhov and Furbank, but the central character is really almost like a character in Balzac, um, this man called Wimmerpool, who at the beginning seems like an absolute buffoon and an absolute bore, but through sheer willpower and the love of power itself, he establishes control over all the other characters, and he comes an absolute cropper in the end, of course, which is very satisfying. So he's an antagonist to the narrator? To, to he Nick is, Jenkins. but the, the narrator doesn't completely hate him until about three-quarters of the way through the book. I like uh, your, uh, your, you liken the narrator to the narrator of the Canterbury Tales, in that he... Never fully appears. Yeah, he tells exactly. the, tell, he, he's crucial to the story. He tells the story, but he sort of obscures I'd, himself. I, I, I only thought of that while I was writing the review, and I wondered whether Pearl, who read history at Oxford and did extremely badly. I think he got a fourth class degree, and you could in those days. Could you? A fourth? But certainly, if not, he got a third. Yeah. I think um, Betjeman did as well, didn't he? Betjeman was sacked without anything. <laughs> he didn't really? even get that Which far. was even better. <laughs> Is a fourth a gentleman's degree? I think that's what a gentleman would get. Yeah, very good. I mean, Pearl was obsessed by class. Um, he was, I imagine, what you'd call shabby genteel type of person, but he, he longed to be grander than he was. He liked the idea that he descended from the kings of poets in Wales. <laughs> is that where the pronunciation of his name comes from? I think it probably is. Actually. He sort of affected that. I think it probably. Would is. he be objected if I if I met, had met him and, and said, uh, "Mr. Powell"? I, I went. Just think you I common. once went to the. Um, I, I went. <laughs> I went to the American Embassy with him once. He was being given this quite grand prize. I think it might have been the Christopher Isherwood Prize. Then it was an American prize. The American ambassador said, oh, Mr. Powell is a really great privilege to him. And he said, we don't call your national poet um, Robert Lowell. Why should, you, why should you call me Anthony Powell? <laughs> really? Interesting. Uh, you mentioned you the American. Oh. <laughs> you say that, yeah. Uh, well, you mentioned Isherwood specifically. Um, and and he's, he, we've, we've discussed his, 
his uh, brief stint in, in, in Hollywood in the 1930s. And then Pohl had one of those Pohl as well. and his wife went out to Hollywood. They weren't very successful screenwriters. Uh-huh. Is, um, that, is that the end of the story? <laughs> they came back. Well, I think the thing they wanted to do when they dropped to Hollywood, they achieved, which was to meet Strott Fitzgerald. He's another great influence. Mm. I mean, Strotty, in, in a way, was Pohl's favourite 20th century writer, certainly English-speaking writer, apart from F- Fairbank. And um, it was a great treat to meet Strott Fitzgerald and have a more or less coherent, sober conversation with him. Did you get on with P.G. Woodhouse? Um, I don't know if they knew one another very well. But you, you, you mentioned P.G. P.G. Woodhouse admired P.G. Woodhouse was a fan, and every time one of the books came out in the Dance Music of Time, a letter would arrive from Long Island, and Plum had been following the, the doings of, of the great really? cast of characters. We talk about America, and you, you say he was... Clear, you mentioned that the, the, the Americans' Time magazine gave him, um, you know, ranked him very highly. He seems like a funny character well, person a, there to there be is popular. A, there's a, there's a, the strain of Anglophilia out there. I think there is. There's a Pole Society in America. There is one here too. Um, and what do they see in him? Is it is it because it's very is it very English? The very English it sort of man. It is manner? English. I think they believe that, which in a way must be true. I mean, I'm being a bit paradoxical, only comparing him with these short people. I mean. People who write short things. Um, <laughs> he wrote, he wrote what they considered to be a sort of panorama of English life, but in a way he didn't, because if you compare him with, let's say, Balzac, for the sake of argument, um, the war is happening, all the Spanish Civil War is happening, all the great class and political divisions of the 1930s, but they're only mentioned uh, as noises off, as a cocktail party or a dinner party or something like that. The only thing you ever hear about the Spanish Civil War is that Erich, who's the uh, George Orwell character, has drawn off to fight in Catalonia. Is but that a bit like Jane Austen, then? Where, where the, it's the very like Jane Austen, yes. The Napoleonic Wars are never mentioned. Never mentioned, yeah. And how about the Second World War, then? Because I know Paul fought, um, and, and obviously, so the, the, the time span of the, of the novel sequence, I think it starts in 1921 and runs through to the early 70s. It runs through to the age of hippies and... Um, so he, does he cover this? Or does it, how does the Second there World three, War fit? Th- I think the three best novels mm. are the ones about the Second World War. He, he was the son of a soldier. He was obsessed by the army. Um, a friend of mine took him to dinner in um, a club, which is perhaps appropriately called Pratt's Club. And um, <laughs> when he'd gone, two old colonels said to my friend, who was that man? We couldn't tell. I mean... He seemed as though he was a brigadier or something like that, because he was so obsessed by the movement around of regiments and uniforms and all that sort of thing. But we'd never seen him before in our lives. <laughs> and, of course, it was Pohl who was utterly obsessed by the army. And so, in a way, the six years of war were very happy ones for him. He belonged to that weird generation my dad too, did too. Of, um, they were about 40 by the time the war came. So they were, they were uh. too old to do anything very useful. And Pohl got sent to Northern Ireland to do some incredibly boring sort of basic training with a Welsh regiment. And he met all these wonderful Welsh characters, some of whom are miners, and the the sort of minor officer class with people like bank managers from Aberystwyth. And um, he evokes them so brilliantly. And he admired them. He admired them. The felicitous occasion for your piece is, in fact, a new biography by Hilary Sperling. Yes, which we've been waiting for years. You say it's not quite what you were expecting, though, or, or what you as a collective of, of, of Paul No, we, is. yes, not, not, not <laughs> I. Uh, Hilary Sperling, who's a very, very good biographer, may I begin by saying, I mean, she, as a young woman, she wrote what I think is the best biography of a novelist ever written, the 
the, the two volumes of Life of Ivy Campton Burnett. And she's drawn on to, to penetrate the secret heart of Matisse and all sorts of people. She was asked by Pohl, to whom she was very close, if she would write the biography. And she was flattered. But <coughs> after a few weeks, she went back to him and said, Tony, I can't do it. He was terribly hurt and upset. Uh, and the reason she said that was that she was too close to him. She didn't want to say, did you have a love affair with X? Or mm. was there a time when your marriage was in trouble or anything like that? So she felt she couldn't do it. And then, of course, when she realised how hurt he was, she felt penitent. And this is what she's now done, years after the event. She's largely based it on his own memoirs and on her very close knowledge of him and his wife. And the, uh, the best thing about this book, from the personal point of view, is that, that she evokes what a loving, close and interesting marriage it was. Because his wife um, cheated she, on she him. She was called Violet. Violet. She cheated on him. Is that what comes... Well, that's, that's the one sort of stoop in, in the book, that she had an affair during the war while he was having his... It's not entirely clear whether she cheated or whether she just fell in love, but mm. she described the man as the love of her life, so we may assume she did. And then, and then, but they stayed together. And they stayed together, but he was a depressive, and when he found out, he was absolutely desolated f for months, years, I think, probably. And w one of the things that you that you mention is that she doesn't really, um, Hilary Sperling doesn't really draw on the journals, and and that's interesting because that's your favourite work. If well, I mean. What she's done, which is a bit like... Sorry to keep mentioning other books. It's a bit like Painter's Life of Proust. This is a biography of the dance and music of time. It's not really a biography of Anthony Pohl. Uh, what she does is she, she describes all the characters he knew, and then you watch them. It's rather like watching a great cook at work, uh, marinating and changing and um, seizing and... Uh, transmogrifying into the characters in the dance music of time. Some of them hardly needed changing at all. Julian McLaren Ross turns up as ex-Trapnel. Other ones, like Mudridge, uh, he changes quite a lot and turns into this little books bagshaw. And then the figure of Orwell changes into Erich, as I've already said. But um, after the book's finished, there were 30-plus years of life in the old gent, and uh, she gives us that in th 14 pages. Are you... Uh, two novels. And, and there were a few novels, yeah. and there were the journals, which you mentioned, which I love, I must say. Purists, and I'm not pure in any sense of the word, <laughs> um, purists find the, the journals a bit much because he's so rude about everybody, but I think they're incredibly funny. Uh, do, you, do you fancy taking this on yourself, then? If, the, if, the, this, if this biography is not the final word in... In the life oh, no, of Pauline. This isn't a, a pitch. No, I'm just saying, <laughs> is there not a pitch to be made? There is a pitch to be made. And uh, could you do it? Um, well, I'm not making it. No. Let me put You're it not saying way. no, though, I noticed. I'm not saying no, because I hadn't thought of it before. Oh, um, well, this could be the flowering of an But I think idea. probably some, some doyen of the Anthony Pohl Society, like Harry Mount, should do it, probably. But someone should. You, th you think it Definitely should, should be. because he was an interesting old man. And he had, although he didn't come up to London very much, he had this big house in the country. He turned out to be very, very rich when his dad died. He didn't realise he was rich. And they bought this house in the country. And everyone you can think of, from Kingsley Amis to X, Y, and Z, went down and saw him. So there's, so there's a rich literary life. To rich be. literary life. Is there a collected letters? And I don't think there are letters, actually. Mm. I mean, he must have written lots of letters. He wrote letters to me. Mm. 
So more to come. I want to say it is a jolly good book. It isn't a failure of a biography. It's a biography of the dance and music of time. Mm. And some, something or another has held her back. Affection. So I think it's a love, yes. Mm. Anne Wilson, thank you very much indeed. Well, thanks for asking me. I really enjoyed this book. I, I strongly recommend it, even to people who haven't read Dance and Music of Time. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. As you know, Toby Lichtig is the TLS's much-respected fiction editor. He is also the much-travelled king of the literary junket. Earlier this month, Toby visited deepest, darkest Peru to attend an adjunct of the Hay Festival. There he spoke with Jeff Dyer, the novelist better known as an essayist and chronicler of some of the quiddities of modern existence, especially in his latest work, White Sands, Experiences from the Outside World. But Toby began by talking to Jeff about following in the footsteps of Gauguin. I mean, so I went to Tahiti because of Gauguin. Um, and in fact, the book was originally going to be called after the Gauguin painting, God, I've, I, I mean, this is why the book didn't have the title that I was going to have, because I can never remember it so long. You know that <laughs> painting called Where Are We From? What Are We Doing? Where Are We Going? And I kept insisting with my publisher, that is the title. And they said, it's a stupid title. Nobody will remember it. And anyway, I changed my mind at the end. So I went to Tahiti just because I wanted to... I didn't just want to see Tahiti. I wanted to, to, to inhabit a Gauguin painting. And, of course, that proved to be impossible. I mean, now Tahiti is just this sort of rather used up place on the sort of on the sort of cruise ship itinerary uh but i ended up being very glad i went even though um gogan wise it, it it didn't deliver anything but it became there were things you know incidental things there that made the trip wor worthwhile i'll just mention another disappointing thing you know we went to uh, uh to the far reaches of of, of norway to experience the Northern Lights, uh, which we didn't manage uh, to, to see. I'll mention another one, actually. There's an account of, um, which wasn't disappointing at all. We were, the first time we met was in Shanghai, and we had a nice time. And then I went to Beijing, and of course I was really keen to see the Forbidden City. 
it's one of the wonders of the world. It lives up to its reputation. It's not disappointing at all. But, you know, who wants to read, in a sense, something about the forbidden city itself? So I found that what just various things there meant that I could use it not as a backdrop to a, to a story taking place, but that the forbidden city, in a metaphorical way, in a very obvious metaphorical way, becomes a kind of play, this thing that causes a kind of drama to happen. It's a kind of romance story in a way. And I think you use the word transcendence, but in a sense, I, mean, I, I sort of never know what transcendence is. I much prefer the opposite of just the idea of being completely in the moment, you know, really rooted in the here and now. Well, um, there's, a, there's almost a kind of spirituality to that, or a, I mean, maybe sp spiritual is the wrong word, but there's a kind of a, a beyondness to even being in the moment, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th I think that's absolutely right. And and then something else. I mean, um, I mean, there was various things going on uh, in in this story. And yeah, so I, I was really, I just felt so. I think that this thing when you're traveling, you know, there are certain, you'll have certain moments where you'll just think, yes, I'm so glad that I did, I'm so glad I came here. My, in a way, my whole life has been worthwhile because I'm having this moment. And this is a bit of a detour. And typically now what young people do, of course, when you're having these moments, you take photographs with your phone. And, you know, I'm too old for that. And the photographs, it seems to me, just don't capture the moment. But something odd happened. There was this guy my age there who was a serious photographer. And he took some photographs of this lovely, magical, warm evening. Magical in so many ways. It was really, really warm. It was incredibly unpolluted. It was the like, least polluted night in Beijing's history of the last 30 years or something. <laughs> it was just wonderful. And his pictures, his photographs just captured this magic, you know, which is so difficult to do. Anyway, so there we were in the moment with the documentary evidence of the photograph to, 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 uh, to back it up. And I emphasize that thing of being in the moment rather than the transcendental so much as a way of building up to this place called the the lightning field. And I guess, I don't want to bore you with it, but how many people have been to or know what the lightning field is? Um, I, I'd never heard of it until I read your ah, book either. So. Okay. So it's a place in uh, New Mexico designed by Walter de Maria in the high desert. And the idea is what he did is he planted these, um, this, uh, these number of steel poles, which typically are about probably the height of this ceiling. Um, and uh, they're separated from each other by about, let's say, 15 feet. And they occupy a precise area of a mile by a kilometer in the middle of the high desert. And the idea is that they attract lightning. And you arrive there, and you can't just turn up there and have a quick look for two minutes and then go, which is a very good thing, because when you first arrive, um, the, the deal is... You, six people can, you have to stay the night there. Six people, you stay in this little hut. So it's only six people. You arrive, and when you arrive, you're so disappointed because there's just nothing to see because it's two o'clock in the afternoon, the sun is so bright, the poles are virtually invisible. So if you did just turn up in your car, you'd think, oh, fuck this, I'm going to go, you know. But actually being obliged to stay there means this incredible experience of a place unfolds over time as the poles become visible with the changing of the light. 
And then you just find yourself in the grips of this, uh, you know, a kind of secular religious experience. And it's just absolutely wonderful. But you really are, you're both locked into the moment and you're all the time thinking, you know, what is, you know, what is going on? You're really, you're so, just as they're trying to concentrate the uh, potential of lightning into this area of a mile by a kilometer, they're really concentrating your experience on, on, on being there. Uh, I should add that it's, its track record as a place able to attract lightning is very poor. <laughs> but you, you don't need to see lightning in order no, to... No, you, you certainly don't. So sort of unlike when you went to see the Northern Lights and didn't see the Northern Lights and were very disappointed, this is a kind of difference. <laughs> very, very... <laughs> a different failure to see light. Very vulgar to go to the lightning field thinking there might be lightning. Right, OK. <laughs> um, and at night it's just wonderful. You've got these, you know, these wonderful steel poles. You're in the middle of nowhere, these incredible, you know, that sort of high desert... Uh, sky with just incredible stars, and you know that's uh, that really is that's yeah it's a it's a uh, it's a wonderful experience. And what was interesting to it, and people go there. Typically, they hear of it, and uh, people interested in art. Whereas it seemed to me it was much more interest. It's okay, you know, of course it's okay to see it in that sort of discourse. But it seemed to me much more interesting to see it more in the context of the way that people throughout history have marked places in the landscape. You know, I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if we stumbled on this place not knowing it was this artwork by Walter de Maria, but, but just stumbled on here, you know, 2,000 years from now when these poles will, you know, certainly still be there, even if we're not. And to try to make sense of what it is in the same way now that we, all these thousands of years later, try to make sense of what happened at Stonehenge or, or why Angkor Wat was designed as it was. I think, I, think you, I, I think it's your phrase, you refer to these accumulated comings and goings. Is that, that is you, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, this sense that sites are invested with significance purely because people have visited them over, over such a long time. Well, not and purely because of that, I think, Toby. And as a way of doing this, I'm going to do that thing of... I'm going to quote myself and I'll explain what's, what's going on. So this is... one. Don't worry, it's not a long reading. This is just a bit where I actually try to explain why certain places maybe have a power and why I think there's more to it than just people trampling over, it, over a place endlessly. So this is just a short explanation of places. Maybe because of some fluke of geomorphology, certain places in a landscape develop a special quality. A slight indentation becomes moist. A river runs through it. This becomes a fertility site devoted to the goddess, the earth mother. To mark the place, people arrange a few stones in the symbolic shape of a phallus or a vagina so that its power is increased enclosed, harnessed. A childless couple go there and mutter a few pleasantries and that very night the wife conceives. News of this miracle spreads. People travel from afar hoping for a similar result, believing that coming here will bring their shaming sterility to an end. And it works. Up to a point. Then it doesn't. The explanation is obvious. During a period of drought, the river 
has dried up. But lacking any knowledge of meteorology, the people who live nearby, who have by now become dependent on the business generated by pilgrims, ask the priests, who are also dependent on the pilgrim trade, what they are to do. They decide that the only way forward is to moisten up the earth goddess with the blood of a few virgins or adolescent males. So they do that. And this previously nice place acquires an atrocious dimension, which, far from cancelling out its sacred status, enhances it. Or maybe they enlarge the simple stone shrine and build something larger along the lines of Angkor Wat or Salisbury Cathedral. Then, after an invasion or two, everyone forgets what it was for and the place falls into disuse and ruin. But the accumulated effect of all these comings and goings lingers and seeps down into the foundations. By falling into ruin, its primal circuitry is laid bare. Even when there are just a few stones left and no one knows what went on here, the place retains what D.H. Lawrence in an essay on Taos Pueblo calls a kind of nodality. So I guess the point that I was making is that it's, it's not just some sort of arbitrary place, that it begins with some geomorphological feature, some specialness in the landscape, and then it, you know, and then it, it builds from there. But then even, even if the knowledge itself has been forgotten of why it was once significant, it, it, it kind of, there's an accumulated, well, there's an accumulation of significance. It, it, indeed, and crucially, I mean, I talked there about the, the way that it sort of seeps into the foundations, and if you, if you visit Varanasi in, in India, you know, which is a place where it's the absolute epicenter of Hinduism, as you know. You go there and, you know, however, however secular you are, uh, as I am, you know, I don't have any religious belief at all, I really believe that the fact that Hinduism has been practiced there has seeped into every molecule of every building so that every temple there hums with some sort of spirit of, you know, pick your god from the Hindu pantheon. Yeah, it's, it's, it, you can see it's, it's alive. If you had some sort of Geiger counter and you go to a place like Varanasi or Stoke, you know, it starts clicking. There's a, there's, a, uh, there's a harnessed power there. Where else would you say you've been on your, on your many travels that's, that's had that kind of Varanasi power? Oh, yeah. Uh, I think I've never... Varanasi is the place where the Geiger counter just couldn't even... It just broke, you know, it just went straight into the red and, you know, it just crashed because the power was so great. Uh, but and lots... We should say that you've written a book partly set in Varanasi, oh, yes. uh, Jeff and Venice, Death in Varanasi, um, yeah. which deals with that very beautifully. That's right. Um, oh, a number of beautiful Buddhist temples in, in Thailand, uh, other Buddhist temples in Laos. Um, uh, uh, and what a shame, though, that our own great place Stonehenge has been so 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 robbed of its power by the very attempts they've made to preserve it I mean it's, it's still got a massive road running very near it which is very yeah, traffic you know it's things. a real you know their latest thing is sort of exit through the gift shop uh, and it's when you look at those paintings say by Turner or you read uh, you read the account in Tess of the D'Urbervilles of the you know you 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 feel it's it's cosmic power then but it, it's really it doesn't seem to have it anymore. Um, anyway, and, you know, I've not been to Machu Picchu, but, uh, you know, I, I'd be very surprised if that didn't have some, uh, some significant 
power. Jeff Dyer and Toby Lishtig. You can hear the full interview on this very podcast feed. To children's literature and especially the pictures contained within it, are they worthy of serious attention? We at the TLS think yes. And Imogen Russell Williams has written a long piece in praise of the inspiring power of images in books. I wanted to begin by mentioning a book my daughter has been reading. It's from the 80s and it's called The Mysteries of Harris Burdick by Chris Van Allsburg, the author of more familiar children's tales like Jumanji and The Polar Express. I say reading, but there's actually very few words in it at all. The postmodern conceit behind the book is that an author named Harris Burdick left a series of captioned images with a publisher, promising to provide the full stories later. He never did, and children are just left with the pictures and gnomic captions. So there's one called Another Place, Another Time. If there was an answer, he'd find it there. And you see this picture of a homemade sailboat running on rails towards a land shrouded in mist through which there's a turrets kind of poke tantalizingly uh, and there's a picture called house on maple street it was a perfect liftoff which accompanies a suburban home in the process of floating into the air and it was turned into a short story by stephen king uh, and they're just beautiful pictures they look a bit hopper like in their glimpses of sort of suppressed creepiness and the reason i mention it is because they function as prompts for childish storytelling they're literary in the sense their aim is to breed more literature and they run counter as Imogen says in her comprehensive survey of other illustrated books to this received wisdom that exists about the improving purpose of children's writing that compulsion as she says to offer challenge to opting for text dense vocabulary boosters at the reader's diagnosed level with a difficulty ramped up a little for luck. Imogen cautions against banishing children from the enchanted kingdom of evocative imagery. Children, in her view, should not be held back from winkling out images, stored secrets of detail, and from learning the artist's language of window frame, colour, light, shade, emphasis, the single line that communicates mood or loss or season, everything we mean by visual literacy. She joins Thea and me in the studio now. Imogen, welcome to you. Thank you. Uh, You've made me sound very eloquent. Though. You are. It's a huge. You did it it's, it's a huge. <laughs> I was just quoting your words. Um, is there a prejudice? Do you think against? Yes. Picture books. <laughs> in a word, yes. There's, in fact, there's quite a strong division between teachers, uh, teachers who feel that picture books are highly um, necessary and important uh, as a tool for learning things other than just words and teachers who do feel pretty strongly that no um, pictures are actually there sort of at the expense of words and they're encouraging guessing um, but Michael Rosen <laughs> guessing has or some... Im imagination as it's also yes, called exactly. yeah. as you can imagine Michael Rosen has some interesting things to say about yeah. that um, he's, he's taken on this, uh, this um, idea and he has said um, curriculum which narrows responses to books to retrieval, inference, uh, chronology and presentation cut off the interpreting response which explores logic, cognition, emotion, empathy and ideas. Um, and I'm obviously very much with him there. So the idea is that you need to, there's lots of ways of prompting children and some of it is verbal but some of it is necessarily image-led. Yes, and also Michael Rosen, I'm going to paraphrase what he said elsewhere, but... Um, for a child, especially a child who perhaps is struggling with learning to read, uh, the feeling that you know more than the person who's reading because you're looking at the pictures and maybe you can predict what's going to happen next, it's a huge booster of, of self-esteem. It's a sense that actually you may be the child, you may not know how to read yet, but you know more than the reader, um, and that is very important. Um, 
before we talk about some other books, the, the front cover of the paper is is a, from a book called Small Things, and we have an image, and the, it's sort of it's a monochrome children uh, sort of walking together with these black, dark creatures that surround and, and follow them. Uh, it sounds like a fascinating uh, book. Tell us about this Small Things. Well, it's it's very unusual um, because when we say when we talk about illustrated books for children or picture books, um, uh, I think most of us kind of get an instant tiger who came to tea, a sense of preschool, maybe. Good this book, one, though. yes. Uh, um, uh, I don't shouldn't swear on this podcast. You can swear as much as you okay. like. <laughs> a bloody good book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you could go further if you wanted. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, very good book. No, absolutely. But we perhaps tend to default to the idea that they are for younger children, uh, something which they do less, in fact, in the States, although this is an Australian book. Um, but this book is for, I mean, I would say that for the right eight-year-old it could work, but probably it's more of a sort of 10 plus. And it's about anxiety and depression if you had to smack a label on it, which I prefer not to do. So that's something quite strange and unexpected. Um, and it is about um, the the feeling of, of crumbling, of coming to pieces and of being plagued by the visible embodiment of, of self-doubt, um, which which are very painful things for a, you know, a parent or a carer to think about um, in conjunction with their beloved, small, shiny-headed child. Um, but children do feel these things and this book helps them. Because it shows them that the other people are feeling... I mean, the picture on the cover, it's it's the... The fact that all children, no matter how confident they may seem, there is a there'll always be a little creature yes, somewhere near them. Exactly, and there will be literal cracks. And a, a number of the books that you that you um, include in your roundup do have this mental health um, yes. um, strand running through them. There's another one which deals specifically with trauma and yes. the putting back together. Yes, and that's Dan Santet's fantastic um, After the Fall, which is the story of uh, how Humpty Dumpty was put back together again, and which is just one of the most joyful fairy tale uh, nursery rhyme revisitings that I can imagine. Um, mental health is is uh, something that I think is dealt with more broadly in children's literature uh, a lot more now and a lot better now than it used to be. Um, and that, again, I think is probably quite necessary because children tend to be um, quite plagued by issues of mental health. Um, but I'll be wandering off the subject of Do you books. think more so now? No, I, I'm interested in this because... Mm-hmm. You could make a case. Is it is it that children are under more pressure now, or or we have more means of articulating the pressure that children and more interest in articulating the pressure that children feel? I think it's a bit of both. Certainly, uh, the idea of the sort of the binary uh, pass or fail um, exam system and the importance of uh, exams and the age at which being tested and passing those tests begins to be significant. That's all been ramped up enormously since I was a child. Um, I remember, and I don't think completely in a sort of rose-tinted, idyllic looking back, uh, the fact that I wasn't stressed about exams until GCSEs rolled around, whereas now children, you know, the, the kids starting year two SATs, even though they are a test for schools, they're aware that they're being tested and they're stressed. Well, not always. It's interesting because my kids are of that age. I've got an eight-year-old and a six-year-old, so my eight-year-old will have done it last year. It's a seven, isn't it? Um, and weirdly, she she goes to a really very good state school where they're very, very they're brilliant teachers. She's got brilliant. It's a very good school, and actually, she barely even knew she was doing them. 
It does depend. And, and you to, can, and that's the thing. If you adopt that sort of attitude, you can. Yes, you can make a difference. Absolutely, can't you? it does depend to a large extent on the school, but it's also it's very difficult because teachers are under enormous pressure to get the right results. And so, with the best will in the world, uh, it sounds as though your your daughter's school is doing the perfect job. But there are lots of teachers who are trying to shield children and that's not true. succeeding because children are not stupid, so they pick up on the on the sense of you know weighty things, weighty forces at prey. Let's try and be chronological. I want to come back to sort of uh, books for older children, but young children, you, you review a couple of... Uh, what function do you think pictures perform? And you mention a book, uh, You Choose in Space. Yes. Now, Thea, I've read you... There's an original. Is this, this is, a, is a sequel? Are there other sequels or is this um, the sequel? There is one more sequel, um, which is called Just Imagine, which is more uh, populated by sort of um, figures of um, fantasy and uh, um, and monsters and... Uh, I think I've um, read that one as well. But, but yeah. the You Choose originally, you, you, you basically... It's called You Choose and it gets a series of scenarios and clothes and you basically pick what you want to be, where you want to live, what hat you want to wear. And you can do this with kids for hours and hours yes. and hours because it's a big book, there's lots of it. And you could say, if you could be anyone, what would you be, a cowboy or a judge or a dancer? And where would you live? You know, a little terraced house or a farmyard cottage. And um, what do you think, the fun, what's, what's, what's happening there? What's good about that? You know, Apart from like... me enjoying it, which I really did. <laughs> um, it, well, you're, you're not alone in that, obviously. Um, in fact, it's the, it's the book which people consistently say is worn out, is actually worn to shreds um, physically by being revisited so often. Um, if we can probably tie it back to the idea of, of the sort of uh, the remorseless conveyor belt um, heading exam woods and then what are you going to do with your life? The great thing about you choose and now you choose in spaces that you can choose and you can go back and make different choices or you can change your mind on the on the hop or you can make all sorts of unlikely combinations and you are completely unfettered in making those choices and that's the thing that children very seldom are you know they are if they go to school where there's a uniform then they don't have choice about what they're going to wear they probably don't have a lot of choice about what they're going to eat for lunch because mornings are finite um, and patience is also finite um, they don't have hours and hours to bugger about in shops choosing the things that they want to buy or have bought for them but they want agency they want power <laughs> um, especially my daughter who is a, a tyrant in the making they want to have the ability to shape their their lives and their landscapes and they don't yet appreciate you know the crushing weight of responsibility that goes with that are they in co- are these books in competition with screens do you think and, and has that changed how people write them they are to a degree. Uh, I don't think that it's necessarily changed how people write them, though. I think that what we have seen is another book that I refer to in the piece is um, Chris Riddell's um, last goth girl book, uh, Goth Girl and the Sinister Symphony. And the book is, uh, again, as I say in the piece, it's sort of a defiantly an objet. It's all this lovely foiling and tooling and a mini book and stuff. And I think that a tendency that we've seen and partly why illustration in children's literature is having a resurgence is to make more of the book as book because you can't compete with screens um, on the, you know on their level um, because books are interactive in a very different way. What you can do is say, like Lane Smith does, it's a book, um, or you can go, it's a book, come into the book, it's so amazing and, and unprecedented and glorious, um, and I think that's what a lot of books do. And does, does one of the books that you, that you do mention involve a tracing with a finger? 
Yes. That's um, yes, it is, isn't it? Um, the idea that, you know, sort of rather than swiping, you're sort of you're tracing a shape on the page with your finger and that's somehow cutting a literal hole. It's a it's a it's analogous, but it's also a very different kind of interaction. Um, but even there, I mean, obviously, Lift the Flap and novelty books um, have been around for, for quite a long time. Perhaps it's responding in it. Nosy Crow, the publisher of that book, are also known for some very good storytelling apps um, which have the text uh, of various fairy tales as the um, focus. But then you I've can, actually played those things. Yes. And, and you move into a different yes. room and you touch things and Cinderella sort of... I did a Cinderella one, and they sort of they she, she sort of starts brushing up, and then yes. she goes into another room to meet it. But I think all of us. I'm the oldest person here. I think, um, but when certainly when I was a kid, and even when you younger people were children, there wasn't this level of competition for attention. No. I mean, there's the iPads, there's constant children's TV if you wanted it. You know, when I was a kid, there was half an hour of children's TV at the beginning anyway in the lunchtime and there was maybe an hour in the afternoon and 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 that was it i mean and that level of competition is of concern possibly even where kids could easily happily live a life without books yes now. they could um and uh this is why it's of paramount importance that every school should have a library and a trained full-time librarian uh, because without mediated uh, access to the best new children's literature yes it's incredibly easy for children to live a life without books parents tend to be very busy parents are often working um, or working two jobs and don't have time uh, to read the you know the best or, or the scope of children's literature that's out there they might default to what has the biggest marketing spend or just books that they remember fondly themselves there's nothing wrong with that but okay. it's nice to know what else is out there too and teachers are under so much pressure that they don't have time necessarily to keep up to date it's striking when you look i was looking at a bestseller list there's a lot of children's books in bestseller lists yes there are david what mainly written by david williams yes is that an is that an unmitigated benefit or, or do you worry that this sort of rolled dial of our age is not necessarily the thing that should be in every child's I'm bookshelf. not very keen on David Williams. Um, I liked his first two books. I thought that they, yes, they were indebted to Roald Dahl. Williams made no secret of that. Um, but they were tender and funny. Um, and they were, uh, especially Boy in a Dress, a plea for tolerance. Um, and Mr Stink, I mean, in between all the sort of pages and pages and pages of description of, of stenches. There was the idea that, you know, this smelly old tramp has this extraordinary backstory, um, but you have to be the certain kind of person who will speak to him and listen and maybe wear some nose plugs, but get to know what his backstory is. These days, I feel that the balance has, has tilted solidly the other way, that it's all too much gross out. Um, and there are a lot of, uh, of rather unease-provoking stereotypes in there, um, like um, Raj, who runs the corner shop and who is obsessed at selling off uh, out-of-date merchandise at, at rip-off prices. That doesn't make me very happy. Um, so I'm not I'm not a big fan of David Williams. It is no. concerning, isn't it, when I think when you look at books for kids, you do worry about the politics. I mean, I, I didn't buy my children Enid Blyton for a long period because my wife said to me quite rightly... If the Famous Five, for example, the girl only gets to do things because she pretends to be a boy and the other girl literally, wherever they go on an adventure, stays back in the, the den yes. and makes tea <laughs> and she's pathetic. And every time they go, let's go out in the dark, she goes, oh, I want to stay here and make tea. She does. She likes to arrange tins on the shelves in caves, yeah. um, which, uh, you know... 
something somebody's got to do it, but it always has to be Anne. And yeah. So the <laughs> politics does matter, doesn't it? Well, um, it's or a really, does it? It's a really interesting one. That um, uh, I am mixed race and I sort of look back on the experience of reading Enid Blyton and many others um, uh, and um, the sort of unconscious prejudice that you imbibe by doing this and when I started reading stuff with my daughter I thought hang on a moment <laughs> certainly things like the gollywogs and the noddy books who are who are criminals um, we will put those on the on the shelf marked no thank you um, but I think that there's a lot to be said for Enid Blyton in terms of how punchy she is and how she, you know, you taught at school all this terrible nonsense about use all these different words instead of said. No, you said, yeah. it's invisible. Yeah. Um, and I think that the the best solution to Enid Blyton is not sort of try and sensitively re-edit and stuff because then you wind up losing stuff like, you know, the brownies in, in the faraway tree and now elves. Brownies offend no one. No. Brownies are just a feature of yeah. folklore. That makes me very cross. Um, the faraway tree is great. <laughs> Exactly. What we need to do um, if we want to have some Enid Blyton is that's those are books that we should read with and to our children and discuss with them. Yeah. Um, I think that is the best solution. Did you see the news story there? The uh, the Sleeping Beauty uh, should be banned because uh, the kiss by the, the handsome prince is given without consent. Without consent. Yeah. It's very yeah. interesting. I mean, if you look back at the sort of uh, older versions of the Sleeping Beauty and the fact that she's impregnated and gives birth to twins whilst they're asleep and then is woken by one of them, uh, you know, by, by her breastfeeding one of them, one could argue that, you know, <laughs> that yeah. we're getting off lightly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there have been these subsequent waves of sanitisation, so this um, is just... Yes. Yeah. I mean, again, I think it's something that, that people should talk about. I... It's, it's pointless trying to purge all the alarming stuff about beauty and the function of a princess and so on because it is so ubiquitous. I think you just have to remorselessly discuss it every single time until your until your kids roll their eyes. Uh, we've got to go, but, but I'd love to hear from both of you a book from your childhood if, that that you would that you recall with affection and you'd want your. Um, any future child or your child to read? Can you, Thea? Can you give one a book? If I say a book of your childhood, is there anything that, you, that springs to mind that you loved? Can I give one for Britain and one for Italy? I'd love that. Actually, I really, really loved Babette Cole when I was oh. when I was a kid, and I, it was only when I when I looked her up just recently that I realised that she in fact died in January this year. Did she? She's very sad. She yeah. did. Did she do a book about uh, how babies are made and stuff like that? Yes, she yes she did, and she did. I like that. She yes. did well. Princess Smarty Pants, yes. which was one of my uh, favourites, yeah. about this kind of biker uh, woman who who refuses to be called Mrs. and goes by Ms. Thank you yeah, very much. Yeah. And I just love the illustration. I think actually I remember the illustration much more than than the actual storylines with those. And then for Italy, probably Gianni Rodari, who did Il Romanzo di Cipollino, which is the what do you call it? The Adventures of Little Onion, um, and it's uh, so he wrote it in the fifties, and it's very, <laughs> it's very, and a lot of Italian children's literature is quite moralistic and quite often very political as well. So this one was written in the early nineteen fifties. Cipollino is this little onion, and um, he lives in this kind of uh, the Garden Kingdom, and the vegetables are all lowly, folksy people who are oppressed by. Uh, the flouncy, uh, fruity, uh, they're all fruits, the royals. Um, and it's all about his kind of his, his brushes with, with power and authority. 
um, and, you know, not letting himself be crushed by it. Anything from you? Any that... Yes, uh, I'm going to cheat and be quick and have two. Um, one, you put me in mind of the fact that uh, um, Jill Barclam has just died and she uh, wrote the Brambley Hedge books and also illustrated them. Incredibly dense and vivid uh, miniature cut-through trees, the lives of these little hedgerow mice um, who live in, you know, they have the store stump and they have the crab apples that they make punch out of and you just, you want to, yeah, you want to live in those worlds. And the other is uh, another illustrated one um, is Terry Jones' fairy tales uh, illustrated by Michael Foreman and also come to that Nicobobinus, the same duo. They just so anarchically hilarious and troubling and frightening and funny and they're just full both the best of both words and art, basically. Well, so they're great recommendations. Imogen Russell-Williams, thank you very much. Thank Indeed. you for having me. That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Imogen Russell-Williams, to Toby Lishtig and Jeff Dyer and to A.N. Wilson. Do go to the-tls.co.uk or your local shop for this week's edition of the paper, which is filled with the sorts of books we fondly think you might buy as Christmas presents, alongside a lovely piece by Clive Stafford-Smith on Injustice on Death Row. That's a bit of a buzzkill, actually, uh, that one. Uh, next time, I'll be talking to the writer of a wonderful long review about the work of Elizabeth Hardwick. Yes, it's this <laughs> podcast's very own Thea Lenarduzzi. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.